Book 19, chapters 22 through 28 of The City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 19, Chapter 22. But it may be replied, Who is this God, or what proof is there that he alone is worthy to receive sacrifice from the Romans? One must be very blind to be still asking who this God is. He is the God whose prophets predicted the things we see accomplished. He is the God from whom Abraham received the assurance, In thy seed shall all nations be blessed. That this was fulfilled in Christ, who according to the flesh sprang from that seed, is recognized, whether they will or no, even by those who have continued to be the enemies of this name. He is the God whose divine spirit spake by the men whose predictions I cited in the preceding books, and which are fulfilled in the church which has extended over all the world. This is the God whom Varro, the most learned of the Romans, supposed to be Jupiter, though he knows not what he says. Yet I think it right to note the circumstance that a man of such learning was unable to suppose that this God had no existence, or was contemptible, but believed him to be the same as the supreme God. In fine, he is the God whom Porphyry, the most learned of the philosophers, though the bitterest enemy of the Christians, confesses to be a great God, even according to the oracles of those whom he esteems gods. Chapter 23 For in his book called Eclogion Philosophias, in which he collects and comments upon the responses which he pretends were uttered by the gods concerning divine things, he says, I give his own words as they have been translated from the Greek, to one who inquired what god he should propitiate in order to recall his wife from Christianity, Apollo replied in the following verses. Then the following words are given as those of Apollo. You will probably find it easier to write lasting characters on the water, or lightly fly like a bird through the air, than to restore right feeling in your impious wife once she has polluted herself. Let her remain as she pleases in her foolish deception, and sing false laments to her dead God, who was condemned by right-minded judges, and perished ignominiously by a violent death. Then, after these verses of Apollo, which we have given in a Latin version that does not preserve the metrical form, he goes on to say, In these verses Apollo exposed the incurable corruption of the Christians, saying that the Jews, rather than the Christians, recognized God. See how he misrepresents Christ, giving the Jews the preference to the Christians and the recognition of God. This was his explanation of Apollo's verses, in which he says that Christ was put to death by right-minded or just judges, in other words, that he deserved to die. I leave the responsibility of this oracle regarding Christ on the lying interpreter of Apollo, or on this philosopher who believed it, or possibly himself invented it. As to its agreement with Porphyry's opinions, or with other oracles, we shall in a little have something to say. In this passage, however, he says that the Jews, as the interpreters of God, judge justly in pronouncing Christ to be worthy of the most shameful death. 
he should have listened then to this God of the Jews to whom he bears this testimony, when that God says, He that sacrificeth to any other God save to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. But let us come to still plainer expressions, and hear how great a God Porphyry thinks the God of the Jews is. Apollo, he says, when asked whether word, that is reason or law, is the better thing, replied in the following verses. Then he gives the verses of Apollo, from which I select the following as sufficient. God, the generator, and the king prior to all things, before whom heaven and earth and the sea and the hidden places of hell tremble, and the deities themselves are afraid, for their law is the Father whom the holy Hebrews honour. In this oracle of his god Apollo, Porphyry avowed that the god of the Hebrews is so great that the deities themselves are afraid before him. I am surprised, therefore, that when God said, He that sacrificeth the other god shall be utterly destroyed, Porphyry himself was not afraid, lest he should be destroyed for sacrificing to other gods. This philosopher, however, has also some good to say of Christ, oblivious, as it were, of that contumely of his of which we have just been speaking, or as if his God spoke evil of Christ only while asleep, and recognized him to be good, and gave him his deserved praise when they awoke. For as if he were about to proclaim some marvellous thing passing belief, he says, What we are going to say will certainly take some by surprise. For the gods have declared that Christ was very pious, and has become immortal, and that they cherish his memory. That the Christians, however, are polluted, contaminated, and involved in error. And many other such things, he says, do the gods say against the Christians. Then he gives specimens of the accusations made, as he says, by the gods against them, and then goes on. But to some who asked Hecate whether Christ were a god, she replied, You know the condition of the disembodied immortal soul, and that if it has been severed from wisdom it always errs. The soul you refer to is that of a man foremost in piety. They worship it because they mistake the truth. To this so-called oracular response he adds the following words of his own. Of this very pious man, then, Hecate said that the soul, like the souls of other good men, was after death dowered with immortality, and that the Christians, through ignorance, worship it. And to those who ask why he was condemned to die, the oracle of the goddess replied, The body indeed is always exposed to torments, but the souls of the pious abide in heaven. And the soul you inquire about has been the fatal cause of error to other souls which were not fated to receive the gifts of the gods, and to have the knowledge of immortal Jove. Such souls are therefore hated by the gods, for they who were fated not to receive the gifts of the gods, and not to know God, were fated to be involved in error by means of him you speak of. He himself, however, was good, and heaven has been open to him as to other good men. You are not then to speak evil of him, but to pity the folly of men, and through him men's danger is imminent." Who is so foolish as not to see that these oracles were either composed by a clever man with a strong animus against the Christians, or were uttered as responses by impure demons with a similar design? That is to say, in order that their praise of Christ may win credence for their vituperation of Christians, and that thus they may, if possible, close the way of eternal salvation which is identical with Christianity." 
for they believe that they are by no means counterworking their own hurtful craft by promoting belief in Christ, so long as their calumniation of Christians is also accepted, for they thus secure that even the man who thinks well of Christ declines to become a Christian, and is therefore not delivered from their own rule by the Christ he praises. Besides, their praise of Christ is so contrived that whosoever believes in him as thus represented will not be a true Christian, but a Photinian heretic, recognizing only the humanity and not also the divinity of Christ, and will thus be precluded from salvation and from deliverance out of the meshes of those devilish lies. For our part, we are no better pleased with Hecate's praises of Christ than with Apollo's calumniation of him. Apollo says that Christ was put to death by right-minded judges, implying that he was unrighteous. Hecate says that he was a most pious man, but no more. The intention of both is the same, to prevent men from becoming Christians, because if this be secured, men shall never be rescued from their power. But it is incumbent on our philosopher, or rather on those who believe in these pretended oracles against the Christians, first of all, if they can, to bring Apollo and Hecate to the same mind regarding Christ, so that either both may condemn, or both praise him. And even if they succeeded in this, we for our part would notwithstanding repudiate the testimony of demons, whether favourable or adverse to Christ. But when our adversaries find a god and goddess of their own at variance about Christ, the one praising, the other vituperating him, they can certainly give no credence, if they have any judgment, to mere men who blaspheme the Christians. When Porphyry or Hecate praises Christ, and adds that he gave himself to the Christians as a fatal gift, that they might be involved in error, he exposes, as he thinks, the causes of this error. But before I cite his words to that purpose, I would ask, if Christ did thus give himself to the Christians to involve them in error, did he do so willingly, or against his will? If willingly, how is he righteous? If against his will, how is he blessed? However, let us hear the causes of this error. There are, he says, in a certain place very small earthly spirits subject to the power of evil demons. The wise men of the Hebrews, among whom was this Jesus, as you have heard from the oracles of Apollo cited above, turned religious persons from these very wicked demons and minor spirits, and taught them rather to worship the celestial gods, and especially to adore God the Father. This, he said, the gods enjoin, and we have already shown how they admonish the soul to turn to God, and command it to worship him. But the ignorant and the ungodly, who were not destined to receive favours from the gods, nor to know the immortal Jupiter, not listening to the gods and their messages, have turned away from all gods, and have not only refused to hate, but have venerated the prohibited demons. Professing to worship God, they refuse to do those things by which alone God is worshipped. For God indeed, being the Father of all, is in need of nothing. But for us it is good to adore him by means of justice, chastity, and other virtues, and thus to make life itself a prayer to him, by inquiring into and imitating his nature. For inquiry, says he, purifies, and imitation deifies us, by moving us nearer to him." He is right in so far as he proclaims God the Father, and the conduct by which we should worship him. 
of such precepts the prophetic books of the Hebrews are full, when they praise or blame the life of the saints. But in speaking of the Christians he is in error, and calumniates them, as much as is desired, by the demons whom he takes for gods, as if it were difficult for any man to recollect the disgraceful and shameful actions which used to be done in the theatres and temples to please the gods, and to compare with these things what is heard in our churches, and what is offered to the true God, and from this comparison to conclude where character is edified, and where it is ruined. But who but a diabolical spirit has told or suggested to this man so manifest and vain a lie, as that the Christians reverenced rather than hated the demons whose worship the Hebrews prohibited? But that God whom the Hebrew sages worshipped forbids sacrifice to be offered even to the holy angels of heaven and divine powers, whom we in this our pilgrimage venerate and love as our most blessed fellow-citizens. For in the law which God gave to his Hebrew people he utters this menace as in a voice of thunder, He that sacrificeth unto any God, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed." and that no one might suppose that this prohibition extends only to the very wicked demons and earthly spirits whom this philosopher calls very small and inferior, for even these are in the scripture called gods, not of the Hebrews, but of the nations, as the Septuagint translators have shown in the psalm where it is said, For all the gods of the nations are demons. That no one might suppose, I say, that sacrifice to these demons was prohibited, but that sacrifice might be offered to all or some of the celestials, it was immediately added, Save unto the Lord alone. The God of the Hebrews, then, to whom this renowned philosopher bears this signal testimony, gave to his Hebrew people a law, composed in the Hebrew language, and not obscure, and unknown, but published now in every nation, and in this law it is written, He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord alone, he shall be utterly destroyed. What need is there to seek further proofs in the law or the prophets of this same thing? Seek, we need not say, for the passages are neither few nor difficult to find. But what need to collect and apply to my argument the proofs which are thickly sown and obvious, and by which it appears clear as day that sacrifice may be paid to none but the supreme and true God? Here is one brief but decided, even menacing, and certainly true utterance of that God whom the wisest of our adversaries so highly extol. Let this be listened to, feared, fulfilled, that there may be no disobedient soul cut off. He that sacrifices, he says, not because he needs anything, but because it behooves us to be his possession. Hence the psalmist in the Hebrew Scriptures sings, I have said to the Lord, Thou art my God, for thou needest not my good. For we ourselves, who are his own city, are his most noble and worthy sacrifice, and it is this mystery we celebrate in our sacrifices, which are well known to the faithful, as we have explained in the preceding books. For through the prophets the oracles of God declared that the sacrifices which the Jews offered, as a shadow of that which was to be, would cease, and that the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun, would offer one sacrifice. From these oracles which we now see accomplished, we have made such selections as seemed suitable to our purpose in this work. 
and therefore where there is not this righteousness whereby the one supreme god rules the obedient city according to his grace so that it sacrifices to none but him and whereby in all the citizens of this obedient city the soul consequently rules the body and reason the vices in the rightful order so that as the individual just man so also the community and people of the just live by faith which works by love that love whereby man loves god as he ought to be loved and his neighbour as himself there i say there is not an assemblage associated by a common acknowledgment of right and by a community of interests but if there is not this there is not a people if our definition be true and therefore there is no republic for where there is no people there can be no republic chapter twenty four but if we discard this definition of a people and assuming another say that a people is an assemblage of reasonable beings bound together by a common agreement as to the objects of their love then in order to discover the character of any people we have only to observe what they love yet whatever it loves if only it is an assemblage of reasonable beings and not of beasts and is bound together by an agreement as to the objects of love it is reasonably called a people and it will be a superior people in proportion as it is bound together by higher interests inferior in proportion as it is bound together by lower according to this definition of ours the roman people is a people and its wheel is without doubt a commonwealth or republic but what its tastes were in its early and subsequent days and how it declined into sanguinary seditions and then to social and civil wars and so burst asunder or rotted off the bond of concord in which the health of a people consists history shows and in the preceding books i have related at large and yet i would not on this account say either that it was not a people or that its administration was not a republic so long as there remains an assemblage of reasonable beings bound together by a common agreement as to the objects of love but what i say of this people and of this republic i must be understood to think and say of the athenians or any greek state of the egyptians of the early assyrian babylon and of every other nation great or small which had a public government for in general the city of the ungodly which did not obey the command of god that it should offer no sacrifice save to him alone and which therefore could not give to the soul its proper command over the body nor to the reason its just authority over the vices is void of true justice chapter twenty five for though the soul may seem to rule the body admirably and the reason the vices if the soul and reason do not themselves obey god as god has commanded them to serve him they have no proper authority over the body and the vices for what kind of mistress of the body and the vices can that mind be which is ignorant of the true god and which instead of being subject to his authority is prostituted to the corrupting influences of the most vicious demons it is for this reason that the virtues which it seems to itself to possess and by which it restrains the body and the vices that it may obtain and keep what it desires are rather vices than virtues so long as there is no reference to god in the matter 
for although some suppose that virtues which have a reference only to themselves, and are desired only on their own account, are yet true and genuine virtues, the fact is that even then they are inflated with pride, and are therefore to be reckoned vices rather than virtues. For as that which gives life to the flesh is not derived from flesh, but is above it, so that which gives blessed life to man is not derived from man, but is something above him. And what I say of man is true of every celestial power and virtue whatsoever. Chapter 26 Wherefore, as the life of the flesh is the soul, so the blessed life of man is God, of whom the sacred writings of the Hebrews say, Blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. Miserable, therefore, is the people which is alienated from God. Yet even this people has a peace of its own which is not to be lightly esteemed, though indeed it shall not in the end enjoy it, because it makes no good use of it before the end. But it is our interest that it enjoy this peace meanwhile in this life, for as long as the two cities are commingled, we also enjoy the peace of Babylon. For from Babylon the people of God is so freed that it meanwhile sojourns in its company. And therefore the apostle also admonished the church to pray for kings and those in authority, assigning as the reason that we may live a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and love. And the prophet Jeremiah, when predicting the captivity that was to befall the ancient people of God, and giving them the divine command to go obediently to Babylonia, and thus serve their God, counseled them also to pray for Babylonia, saying, In the peace thereof shall ye have peace, the temporal peace which the good and the wicked together enjoy. Chapter 27 but the peace which is peculiar to ourselves we enjoy now with God by faith, and shall hereafter enjoy eternally with him by sight. But the peace which we enjoy in this life, whether common to all or peculiar to ourselves, is rather the solace of our misery than the positive enjoyment of felicity. Our very righteousness, too, though true in so far as it has respect to the true good, is yet in this life of such a kind that it consists rather in the remission of sins than in the perfecting of virtues. Witness the prayer of the whole city of God in its pilgrim state, for it cries to God by the mouth of all its members, Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And this prayer is efficacious not for those whose faith is without works, and dead, but for those whose faith worketh by love. For as reason, though subjected to God, is yet pressed down by the corruptible body, so long as it is in this mortal condition, it has not perfect authority over vice, and therefore this prayer is needed by the righteous. For though it exercises authority, the vices do not submit without a struggle. For however well one maintains the conflict, and however thoroughly he has subdued these enemies, there steals in some evil thing, which, if it do not find ready expression in act, slips out by the lips, or insinuates itself into the thought, and therefore his peace is not full so long as he is at war with his vices. For it is a doubtful conflict he wages with those that resist, and his victory over those that are defeated is not secure, but full of anxiety and effort. 
Amidst these temptations, therefore, of all which it has been summarily said in the divine oracles, is not human life upon earth a temptation? Who but a proud man can presume that he so lives that he has no need to say to God, Forgive us our debts? And such a man is not great, but swollen and puffed up with vanity, and is justly resisted by him who abundantly gives grace to the humble. Whence it is said, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. In this, then, consists the righteousness of a man, that he submit himself to God, his body to his soul, and his vices, even when they rebel, to his reason, which either defeats or at least resists them, and also that he beg from God grace to do his duty, and the pardon of his sins, and that he renders to God thanks for all the blessings he receives. But in that final peace to which all our righteousness has reference, and for the sake of which it is maintained, as our nature shall enjoy a sound immortality and incorruption, and shall have no more vices, and as we shall experience no resistance either from ourselves or from others, it will not be necessary that reason should rule vices which no longer exist, but God shall rule the man, and the soul shall rule the body, with a sweetness and facility suitable to the felicity of a life which is done with bondage. And this condition shall there be eternal, and we shall be assured of its eternity, and thus the peace of this blessedness and the blessedness of this peace shall be the supreme good. CHAPTER Twenty Eight. But, on the other hand, they who do not belong to this city of God shall inherit eternal misery, which is also called the second death, because the soul shall then be separated from God its life, and therefore cannot be said to live, and the body shall be subjected to eternal pains. And consequently this second death shall be the more severe, because no death shall terminate it. But war being contrary to peace, as misery to happiness, and life to death, it is not without reason asked what kind of war can be found in the end of the wicked answering to the peace which is declared to be the end of the righteous. The person who puts this question has only to observe what it is in war that is hurtful and destructive, and he shall see that it is nothing else than the mutual opposition and conflict of things. And can he conceive a more grievous and bitter war than that in which the will is so opposed to passion, and passion to the will, that their hostility can never be terminated by the victory of either, and in which the violence of pain so conflicts with the nature of the body that neither yields to the other? For in this life, when this conflict has arisen, either pain conquers and death expels the feeling of it, or nature conquers and health expels the pain. But in the world to come the pain continues that it may torment, and the nature endures that it may be sensible of it, and neither ceases to exist, lest punishment also should cease. Now, as it is through the last judgment that men pass to these ends, the good to the supreme good, the evil to the supreme evil, I will treat of this judgment in the following book. End of Book 19, Chapters 22 through 28 Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.